please join me in opening up your Bibles to Galatians 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever, forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. It always takes a minute to get organized up here. I was talking about that with uh, Michael Stump a couple weeks ago when, when he was preaching, and I thought, yeah, I never know where to put my water bottle, and so I thought, I, maybe I'll bring the stool up here, and it would be very convenient. And he told me, oh yeah, like a comedian. My water bottle will not be on the, uh, on the stool, so he, he ruined that. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, I am Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church, and it's my privilege to open our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. And I will tell you, I have wanted to teach or preach in the book of Galatians for 21 years. So 21 years ago, Tanya and I were on a flight. And there's several of you who feel the same way that I do. If you're planning a long trip to go anywhere, the most important thing that you plan is what books you're going to read on that trip. And on that trip, I had picked a New Testament commentary on Galatians. So I was planning to read a commentary. So I know many of you would love to go on a vacation with me. It's, it's, it's really good. Uh, that w- we left on a Tuesday from where we lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. We were going to Atlanta and then to a couple of other places. It was, uh, but it was Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. So uh, that was the day of the terrorist attacks and, on the Pentagon and, and the uh, World Trade Center. And so our flight was diverted. And so I never really got to read through that Galatians commentary, but as I was, or on that trip anyway, but as I was preparing for this sermon, I found the old boarding pass, and uh, it's in this book somewhere, and, uh, and it just reminded me of that time. But uh, immediately following that, I was in the military then, I was deployed. And so a few short weeks later, I was in Pakistan, then Uzbekistan, and Afghanistan, and I still wanted to study Galatians, so I had my Bible with me. And I've told you a similar story about other books of the Bible, but on those deployments, I wanted to study Galatians. So I'd read Galatians three times a day till that felt like a lot. And then I would drop it down to just reading the, the entire book of letter to the Galatians two times a day, and then I'd drop it down to once a day. And over the course of you know, maybe two or three months, I might read through Galatians 50 to 70 times. And God changed my life. He changed me through that study of the book of Galatians. Uh, 
just, just spending that much time in the Word, it just, it just sinks in because the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it comes from the Lord. It is inspired by God. It will do its work in our lives. Galatians did its work in my life. So since that time, 20 to 21 years ago, I thought of Galatians as a letter of just these incredibly sharp contrasts. Paul makes his points by asking a series of questions that can only be answered by one of two answers. There wasn't really much room in the middle. Just an example, chapter 2, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No. Or chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law contrary to the word of God? Again, no. This letter is a combative letter. Paul is battling with those who are trying to add to the gospel of grace. He's battling for the souls of those tempted to believe that they need to obey the law in order to be right with God. And he does battle with the idea that we can do anything, that we can do anything in ourselves that will improve our standing before a righteous God. That is not our work to do. Galatians is about the gospel. This letter teaches us from beginning to end, our salvation is about grace. Our salvation is entirely a gift we receive. There is not a work we can do to earn it. Even after our adoption by God, we're to live by the same faith and by the same spirit by which we were saved in the first place. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. So before we begin, I want to offer you some counsel. I recently turned 60, so I'm an older man. I'm still getting used to that. So I'm frequently called to share counsel or to share wisdom learned over many years. And so here's one thing that the Lord has taught me. The things that help me most in living out this life are the deep things of God. It's his character. It's his work. It's his promises. It's his word, his doctrine. This lesson isn't unique to me. We've been learning this together in the Psalms. When David's in trouble, what does he turn to? Does he, does he get one little bit of advice on how to improve his situation? No, he turns to God and he thinks of God's character. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my stronghold. The word of the Lord is a strong tower. Uh, turn with me to, just as an example, to Psalm 56, and then we'll come back to Galatians. So maybe leave your bulletin in, in Galatians 1, turn quickly to Psalm 56, and I'm just going to just briefly talk a little bit about David connecting his struggles, his suffering, his pain, his troubles to the character, to the right, sound doctrine of God. So, Psalm 56, David's song of his time as a prisoner of the Philistines. In verse 1, you can look at that. David speaks of his fear of man. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. But he combats this fear with truths about God and his promises. Verse 3. I'll put my trust in you. Keep re reading. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'll, I shall not be afraid. In fact, God sees. 
He he's even has my tears in his bottle. He's, he keeps track of my sorrows. God is for me. He delivered my soul from death. Why? Look, at, look there in verse 13. So that I may walk before God. So you can turn back to Galatians. David trusted in the Lord. He faced enemies and endured trials because of, of his intimate and abiding knowledge of and love for God. And at the end of his trials, David can remain steadfast. He sings. He gives thanks. He glorifies his Lord for his loving kindness. He exalts God. And Galatians is teaching us to do this, to do the same thing. In this letter, Paul teaches us to understand the gospel, to enjoy its benefits, and then to walk out, the sal- walk out this salvation in a lost world. He teaches us to love God in truth. So let's pray for the Spirit's help in understanding this letter. Pray for his help in living it out. Heavenly Father, you are God. You are our creator. You have adopted us. We are your people by the work of your hand. So we love you for what you've done for us. We love you because of who you are. And so help us to to love you more. Help us to praise you. Help us to love you in truth. Help us to know you and know you through your word. Help us to encourage each other to live this out. May you be glorified in our study together of Galatians. May it bear fruit in our life, and that fruit be the fruit of the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. And in looking at this passage, we're going to first examine the messenger, the messenger of the gospel. That's going to be in verses 1 through 2a. You know, who is the Apostle Paul? How did he come to write this letter? Those are the things that we're going to, to be exploring. Then secondly, we'll look at the recipients of the message, verses 2b. Who were the churches of Galatia? Third, we'll look at the gospel message itself in verses 3 and 4. And we'll probably spend the, the, you know, most of our time in that section, the gospel message, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, we're going to look at the purpose of the gospel in verse 5. So four points, the messenger, the recipients, the message, and the purpose of the gospel. So the messenger, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. So who was Paul? This is probably going to be a review for most of us. It might be new to some of us, but it's worth remembering. He was an apostle. That's a two-part word that means from and to send. So Paul was an apostle. He was sent from someone on behalf of the person who sent him. Paul was an apostle of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he signals his stance, the, the, the attitude that he's holding in this letter right in the first sentence. So in the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm just reading this from other commentators and and Greek dictionaries. The first word, Paul. The second word, we translate it an apostle. The third word, not. Paul begins contradicting false teachers right away. Those teachers are not only contradicting his message, a message he received directly from Jesus Christ, but they're attacking Paul's authority 
to deliver that message. You can imagine the arguments. You heard this gospel from Paul. He didn't even become a Christian until after Jesus was crucified. He's not an apostle in the same way that Peter is or the same way that John is. I mean, we see this today in arguments on social media and arguments on TV and arguments sometimes uh, regretfully amongst ourselves. We can discredit a message if we can discredit the messenger. Paul tells the Galatian churches his apostleship is not through man, not at all, but directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul was originally named Saul. He was a Benjamite like King Saul. His Latin name was Paul. He was a native of Tarsus, a town on the corner of the Mediterranean. We, we included a small map in your bulletin. Many of your Bibles might have a map in the back, that little bitty corner. Um, it's part of a modern-day Turkey. If you're a military person, it's very close to Inserlik Air Base. Tarsus was a Roman city, and Paul was able to claim Roman citizenship. So he's a, he grew up in a Jewish family in a Roman city, Tarsus. He would have learned the faith in his home. He would have learned the, his faith in the local synagogue. And, of course, Paul would have been well-trained in the Jewish faith, so much so that he went, eventually went to Jerusalem to study under probably the most famous rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, a leading teacher of his time. And this probably took place when Paul was about 13 to 18 years old. So Paul, Paul was a zealous pupil. He was an apt pupil. The writer and physician and companion of Paul, Luke, in Acts, introduces us to Paul first at the stoning of Stephen. So Paul, a zealous young man, Jewish, in Acts 7.58, he's described this way. When they had driven him out of the city, talking about Stephen, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. He was going there to arrest Jews and to persecute Jews who had accepted Jesus. And on the way, a startling light forced him to the ground. This is his encounter with Christ. And out of that light, he heard this. Why are you persecuting me? This was Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ. Paul was struck blind. He was led into the city by his traveling companions. And there he was met by a Christian named Ananias who was led by the Lord to meet with Paul, a man who was traveling there to persecute him. Ananias told Paul he was chosen by God as a messenger for the Gentiles. So after Paul received his sight, he was baptized and then began speaking out boldly in the Damascus of the gospel of Christ. And of course, he eventually had to flee back to Jerusalem where he continued to preach boldly until the Jerusalem disciples helped him return to Tarsus to avoid those seeking to put him to death. So now Paul, this persecutor of Christians, is being hounded out of Israel. He's back in Tarsus, and he remained there for a short time until Barnabas brought him to Antioch. So we're going to hear a couple of Antiochs. So this Antioch is where Christians first began to be called Christians. It is where Paul was discipled in the faith, where Paul served in the faith with Barnabas. Soon after, Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church at Antioch. I'm sorry. 
He remained in Tarsus until Barnabas brought him to Antioch. After three years in Antioch, Paul returned to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. And in Galatians 1, 23 and 24, Paul says they were glorifying God because Paul, who once persecuted them, is now preaching the faith. Paul returned to Antioch, and soon after, Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church at Antioch to do the work the Lord called them to do. They were going to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And this journey is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And it's on this journey that Paul visited the churches of Galatia. So there's another Antioch, Sidian Antioch. It's on the Galatian border. Uh, if you're looking on the map, the cities Iconium, Lystra, and Derby are in southern Galatia. On this journey, Paul and Barnabas first presented the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews. And then after encountering Jewish opposition, preached the gospel to the Gentiles. So in Antioch, Paul falls ill. In Derby, Paul was stoned nearly to death. He was left for dead. He preached the gospel to the Galatian churches in weakness. Galatians 4, 13 and 14 says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. So Paul, after this journey, he returns to Antioch, his home church. At about this time, some men came to Antioch, and they were teaching, unless you're circumcised. Listen to how this is antithetical to the gospel. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. These same kind of men who traveled uh, to Galatia, and maybe even part of the same group, So Paul traveled to Jerusalem to confirm the truth of the gospel that he had been preaching, the gospel of grace through faith, not the result of works. And it was at this council that the church leaders again confirmed that the gospel Paul was preaching was the true gospel. Keeping of the Jewish law could not bring salvation. So Paul returned to Antioch and soon after returned to Galatia to see how the churches he planted were doing. Most scholars think Galatians was written between the first and second missionary journeys. Some speculate it could have been written after the second journey. So let's get back to our passage. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Think about Paul is describing who he is, and he couldn't even explain who he was without talking about the resurrection. The gospel was central to Paul's identity. So who's Paul? He's a man saved by the power of the gospel. He's one sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In fact, Paul, like us, was raised from spiritual death. We were spiritually dead. We were on our way to a deserved eternal death when Christ saved us. We were baptized to demonstrate the new life we have in Christ. We take the Lord's Supper to remember the death and resurrection of the Lord. For those whom Christ has saved, like Paul, our primary identity, who are we? We are in Christ. That is our identity. All other distinctions between us are subsumed by the identity we have in Christ. Like Christ and with Paul, we've been raised from the dead. Paul's authority is confirmed through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Kenneth Woost, he's one of my favorite New Testament commentators, says both names are governed by the preposition dia, through. And that shows that Jesus Christ 
and God the Father are not separated in his mind, sustaining a different relationship to his apostleship, but they're conceived of jointly as sustaining one relation. So even in Paul's salutation, even as he's describing who he is, he's teaching of the unity of the Father and the Son. In his greeting, Paul also refers to all the brethren who are with me. So Paul has the authority of his position as an apostle. His apostleship was confirmed by Christ who sent him, by the Spirit, but also by the brethren with him. Brethren evidently known by the Galatians since they're not listed. And these numerous other brethren are given to show that God is that Paul is sent by God. His testimony is attested to by other trusted brothers in much the same way that we attest to each other's salvation. And we do this through baptism. We do this through church membership. So that's who Paul is. Now we get to the recipients. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, pretty simply, to the churches of Galatia. That's an abrupt greeting. And so very briefly, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. I just want to compare this greeting, we can remember it, to the churches of Galatia, to a couple of other letters that Paul wrote. So Romans chapter 1. And he talks about himself. He talks about what God did for him. And then he he gives the greeting to the church in Rome, starting in verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And he, he just goes on and on about his prayers. Continue over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's his greeting to a church that is in serious error. They are tolerating sin in the church. They are not loving each other correctly. They are not even conducting their worship services correctly. But they do have the gospel right. So Paul is is addressing serious issues of Christian conduct in the Corinthian church. In the Galatian church, he's, he's addressing problems in their understanding and practice of the foundations of the gospel. And hear the difference in his greeting. So I'm going to start in verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. And he goes on through, uh, through verse 8. Now we're back in Galatians chapter 1. To the churches of Galatia. And he, Paul's setting the tone. Paul, an apostle, not appointed by man. To the churches of Galatia. It is serious business when the church of God does not hold to the sound doctrine, the right doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. The churches of Galatia, their church is planted by Paul. Galatia was a Roman province, so there's a tribal group, the Gauls, the same group that settled in France. They immigrated to that area a little after 300 BC, and they settled in that north central part of modern day Turkey. I think on our map, you can probably just see G A L 
in that sort of central area that's describing that Galatian region. Later, the Romans formed a province, and they combined this ethnic northern, uh, very rugged terrain, type, inaccessible area with a much more well-traveled, easier access, ethnically diverse section in that southern part of Turkey and called it one province of Galatia. It's that southern section that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. So, And it follows uh, Paul's practice of going uh, by major uh, travel routes uh, to major cities in that area and preaching and teaching, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and forming churches, uh, establishing those churches, appointing elders, and then moving on. Uh, frequently writing or, or coming back to visit to, uh, to strengthen those churches. And he did that in, uh, in southern Galatia on that first trip. The churches Paul planted were made up of believing Jews and then also Gentiles. And Acts 13 and 14, which is worth reading this week if you haven't had a chance to read it recently, records just tremendous opposition that Paul faced and Barnabas faced. Um, the synagogue leaders would rise up to speak against Paul. They instigated a persecution. They drove them from Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were mistreated and nearly stoned in Iconium. They were denounced, stoned, and left for dead in Derby. And despite this beginning, the churches of Galatia survived and even thrived in the midst of opposition. However, these churches were later infiltrated by a false doctrine that contradicted the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the teachers of this false doctrine attacked Paul's apostleship. Chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 6, they enticed Galatian believers to desert the gospel of grace for a different gospel. Also in 1, verse 6, they distorted the gospel, preaching contrary to what Paul taught. They taught against liberty, Christian liberty, in chapter 2, verse 4. They even influenced Peter for a time in chapter 2, verse 11. Their gospel was such a distortion that Paul uses this letter to the Galatian churches to identify those sharp contrasts that exist between the true gospel of grace preached by Paul, the false gospel of slavery preached by the false teachers. And so we sometimes labeled these false teachers Judaizers because they were seeking to require Gentiles to meet some of the Jewish requirements of the law, especially circumcision. So here's a brief summary of, what the, of the false teaching of the Judaizers. So I'm sure future sermons are going to flesh this out. So this is just a brief in, introduction. In Philippians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, Paul calls the Judaizers dogs and evil workers. The concision, which is just a play on words referring to those who are merely physically mutilated as opposed to being the true circumcision. They're contrasted with true believers who worship God in the spirit, while Judaizers express confidence in the flesh. Paul tells us of the human achievement the Judaizers trust in. They trusted in circumcision. And that sign marking the person as part of a chosen people, that sign was meant to mark a people, the nation of Israel, as separate. The people of God, the people God has set apart as a channel through which he would reveal himself and would reveal salvation to the world. That sign had nothing to do with personal salvation and acceptance by God. It never had. That was always done by grace through faith. The Judaizers taught that acceptance by God was brought about by being a member of the nation of Israel. Their ecclesiology 
Their doctrine of the church required the church to be a part of the nation of Israel. They also taught that faithful observance of the law would provide them a righteousness acceptable to God. Paul, in Romans 9.30 through 10, verse 3, tells us that Israel failed in obtaining a righteousness acceptable with God because the nation ignored the righteousness of God. And what was that? Christ, given an answer to faith. They tried to establish their own righteousness by doing good work. So the Judaizers belonged to that section of the nation of Israel that was unsaved. And then these unsaved Jews infiltrated the Christian church and taught a false gospel. They sought to undermine the true gospel of grace through faith by undermining Paul's apostleship, substituting his salvation by work system. And so this is a reminder that nothing is to be added or taken away from the gospel. This letter leads us to ask some questions. So I want to ask you just a couple of questions right now. Do you try to find favor with God through things you do or things you achieve? We're not saved that way. We don't continue to live out our salvation in that way. This letter contradicts any idea that salvation is given to us by anything other than the free gift of the Lord. Another question. Are, the ways, are there ways that you are tempted to add to or subtract from the gospel of grace? And what are those temptations? Are we as a church tempted to, to let false doctrine into this church? Are we, are we afraid of persecution? Do we think it is loving to love a person who does not hold to sound doctrine and bring them into this body? And we can be tempted in those areas. This letter, uh, this letter calls us to stand on the word of God and on sound doctrine. So here's the message of the gospel. And I'll read in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this evil age. So we're going to look at this passage first, and then we're going to flesh it out just a little bit in the remainder of this letter. Grace and peace. Grace, the source of our salvation, followed by peace, the result of our salvation. We received our adoption in Christ through grace, and through grace we have peace with God. Even this greeting is contrasted with the law, which provides no grace and certainly no peace. If you're seeking to earn your salvation through obedience to the law, through obedience to some set of rules, how can you know when you've been obedient enough? I mean, even before we look here at verse 1, we go back to ver verse 4, we go back to verse 1. Paul gives us a glimpse of the incarnation. Jesus mentioned in the same breath as God the Father. Again, in verse 3, the calling of God, the calling of Christ, they're one and the same. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is distinguished from other men by his special relationship with God the Father. He's united to the Father. And verse 4 teaches us four very important things about the cross of Christ. I just want to refer to a commentator called Philip Ryken because I used a, a, a section of his commentary to... to uh, to help me understand uh, this passage of scripture. And so uh, he was very helpful. So four important things about the cross of Christ. First, it shows us that Jesus was willing to die on the cross. Did you catch that? 
Jesus gave himself. No one took his life. He freely gave himself for his church in the same way that he calls husbands to give themselves up for their wives. You remember Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul says the same thing in Titus chapter 2. And I'm going to read Titus 2 starting in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, it bringing salvation to all people instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ gave himself. Second, this verse teaches us the purpose of the cross. Christ freely gave himself for our sins. We deserve to die for our sins. We have truly earned death for our sins. We have not been given that death, those who believe. Instead, the Son of God freely gave himself to be our substitute. We deserved to die on that cross because we are truly guilty. We owe God an infinite death, debt that cannot be repaid by us. Obeying laws cannot repay the debt. God's character demands unconditional holiness. Listen to James 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Paul explains this further in the letter in Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So if you want to be justified through the law, declared not guilty by the Lord God, the standard you have to meet, that we have to meet, is perfect obedience to his law in all things at all times. Matthew 5, 48 says, So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's the problem? Romans 3.23 puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8. We say that we have no sin. We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So we are in trouble. We think we can justify ourselves to God somehow. But we can't. Even a single sin is enough to separate us from the presence of God. And none of us comes close to that standard of perfection. We're born in sin. We want to sin. We commit sins. And then at some point, we want to do a few good things to earn a relationship with God. But we've already failed. But God sent Christ, who gave himself for our sins. The third thing this verse shows us is the result, the impact, the effect of the cross. Christ gave himself, he died, for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present age. So Christ paid for our sins. He's the one who innocently kept the whole law. He was able to give himself as the perfect one who kept the whole law. And this is the atonement. He atoned for our sins. But Christ also was crucified in our place to rescue us from this present evil age. So rescue. 
to deliver from. So it doesn't mean a removal from, but a rescue from the power of this evil age. So this present evil age. Boy, we can go many places in Scripture. First John describes this so well. Here's maybe just some examples of how some pastors and commentators have, have described this phrase, this present evil age. A passing, transitory system of evil or the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God or an age dominated by the evils of war, murder, oppression, slavery, incest, and abortion. Jesus died on the cross to save us from all of it. And even though we live in this world, we are being rescued from it through the cross. The age to come has invaded the present evil age. Jesus, teaching us to pray, asked that God would deliver us from evil. Jesus asked God to deliver us from evil, and God has answered that prayer. He continues to answer that prayer. So the fourth thing this verse shows us is that the driving force of this salvation is according to the will of our God and Father. We're saved because God, for God's purposes, for his glory, acted to set his love upon us and save us. Christ's death wasn't an accident. It was part of the plan of God to glorify himself by creating a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter said in his Pentecost sermon, Acts 2, verses 22 and 24. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. God saved us according to the will of our God and Father. So before we leave this section about the message of the gospel, I just want to emphasize three important points that, that help us listen to a future sermons in Galatians, to help us read Galatians, to help us understand it. So three important aspects of the letter. First is this, just the structure of Paul's argument. So for the last 21 years, I thought of Galatians as that letter of sharp contrast. Here's why. Paul establishes the Galatians in their faith and opposes the Judaizers by asking a series of questions about the gospel. Each question demands one of two possible answers. Over the coming weeks, we're going to examine these questions and answers, and we'll build an understanding of the gospel through these questions. And here's just a few of the examples. So ask yourselves these questions. Chapter 2, verse 14, to Peter. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul attacks legalism, keeping legal requirements to earn acceptance by God. Chapter 2, verse 16, how are you justified? This is an implied question. By faith in Christ or through works of the law? Remember, keeping laws has never saved anyone. It will never save anyone. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Did you re receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul talks a lot about the Spirit in this letter because God ministers his grace to us through the Spirit. And this grace is totally at odds with the works of the law. Fourth question, why the law then? Chapter 3, verse 19. He answers that question. It's a mediator. It was intended to shut us up under sin and demonstrate our, our need for Jesus Christ. Is it contrary to the promises of God? No. It was never intended to save. The law perfectly performed its purpose that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Chapter 3, verse 22. Fifth question. Chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? In light of the purposes of the law, to shut you up under sin, to teach you your need for Christ, why turn back to it when Christ has been revealed to you? You can receive the free gift of atonement for your sins and rescue from the present evil age. The Galatian churches were taught the true gospel. They were offered salvation through Christ alone. You are offered salvation through Christ alone. Do not go back to the law. Sixth question, chapter 4, verse 15. Where is the sense of blessing you had? Galatians, you started strong. What's hindered you in continuing the same way? So if you're like me, I am prepared to be challenged by the sermon on this passage. Has there been a time where your faith has been stronger? Where your faith has flowed out of your mouth? Where the love that you felt for brothers in the church compelled you to act in loving ways? Where the love that you've, you've felt for lost people around you compelled you to speak? Where is that sense of blessing you had? What's hindered you in continuing the same way? Seventh question. And the, the last one I'm going to, uh, to talk about. Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? You have the choice to be free in Christ. You have the choice, alternatively, to be a slave in sin. So Galatians is all about contrasting salvation by faith with attempting to earn Salvation by obeying laws. So the second important aspect of this letter, letter, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? When we're a slave to anything, we submit our wills to that thing. So smokers, enslaved to the nicotine. Addicts and alcoholics, enslaved to the substance they crave. Workaholics, perhaps enslaved to achievement. Perfectionists, Maybe enslaved to their own precise standards. Gamblers become enslaved to taking risks in order to win. We're all slaves to something. We, we have the opportunity to choose what we are going to be a slave to. Even, even a, a popular singer, I say popular, I'm an old guy, so a popular singer 100 years ago, Bob Dylan, wrote a song in 1979 but even he, could, he wrote in the song, God to serve somebody about this very thing. And I, I'm just going to read, not sing, the first, uh, the first verse in the chorus. But even he sees what Paul is teaching. You might be an ambassador to England or France. 
You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long stream of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you are going to have to serve somebody. We all serve somebody or something. You know, sometimes we think, I wish I just had the freedom to do whatever I want. I want that freedom. If we think that way, we will discover that we've just chosen to enslave ourselves to something else. Galatians 5 shows us some of the things that can master us. And I'm just going to read verses 13 through 21 quickly. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And he describes what those desires of the flesh are. And and then starting in uh, verse 19, he talks about the deeds of the flesh. When you're a slave to the flesh, these are the things you're a slave to. Deeds of the flesh are evident. They're immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are things that will enslave us. God offers the only true alternative to that slavery. John 8 Verse 34 through 36, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So in Christ, you are offered an inheritance in the family of God. Without Christ, you are a slave to sin. The third important aspect of this letter, and I want you to remember, is the difference between works of the law and good works. It was an embarrassingly long time in my Christian life before I really understood the distinction between works of the law and good works. But listen, uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 and 9 says, "For For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. Our works do not save us. Works intended to earn merit from God do not save. They're not even good. Look at the explanation. Our works don't save us so that no one may boast. If we're relying on something we could potentially boast about in ourselves to save us, it does not save us. We are saved by grace through faith. Those things are works of the law. There's no room for them in our faith. Works of the law are useless. They are evil. If we believe or teach that they can earn any merit with God, we are teaching a false gospel. However, good works are different. Keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works are crucial. We have been rescued from this present evil age for good works. They're not works for us to boast in. They're not works that earn favor with God. Far from our works earning God's favor, we're his workmanship. The implication is we can't boast in works of the law. They're useless. We can 
boast in God's work. He rescued us for good works. In fact, in the same way God prepared beforehand to save us, he prepared beforehand works for us to walk in. Our holiness, our good works are the result of our salvation. Paul describes our salvation as receiving the spirit. Our holiness and our works are described as fruits of that spirit. Their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are fruits of the Spirit. So don't confuse works of the law with good works. One is evil. The other is holy. One promises salvation but produces slavery. The other is the result and evidence of salvation. So why did God do all this? What's the motivation for this salvation so freely given? Verse 5. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. The purpose of the gospel. God desires his own glory. It is a good and right thing to give glory to God. To boast in his greatness. Reread verses 3 and 4. Look at them right now. They don't contain a single word about anything we do. Paul described God's work through Christ. The gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. God the Father is the one who came up with the gospel plan. God the Son is the one who made the willing sacrifice in keeping with the Father's will. God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Together, the Father and Son accomplished our salvation through the cross. Together, they announced it to the world through the teaching of the apostles. And together, they apply it to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Amen. There was a, uh, a missionary who observed a Cantonese Christian. And at the end, he said in Cantonese a, a phrase at the end of his prayers that, that really seek, that really speak to what amen means. And translated, it says, with my whole heart, this is what I wish. So Galatians, it's important. And it's important to us, church. This is a letter about justification by faith alone. And as an older man, as an old man, I'm telling you, your understanding and practice of living out this doctrine is important. It affects everything. Doctrine matters, and the doctrine of salvation matters most. Here's one example of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone applied to something we might not expect. Uh, I was recently at Together for the Gospel conference in April. We got to hear many uh, wonderful pastors speak. One of the pastors we spoke was also a, a recording artist named Shai Lin. And he, he spoke of, of a few things that, that pointed me back at Galatians. And he, he also wrote a book called The New Reformation. So it's a good book. In the middle of the book is a great chapter, chapter 9, on ethnicity and justification. And in the uh, middle of this great chapter is a stunning sentence. So I want to set you up. We're going to get to what he said and see some of the implications. So I'm reading this because this is an implication of the, of the doctrine of the justification by faith alone. So here's what he writes. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. There is ethnic disunity in the body of Christ, and that is a serious problem. If we take what the Bible has to say about division seriously... We'll recognize it as a serious problem. It doesn't take advanced observational skills to see the problem. It's obvious. I wrote this book to address that problem. Presumably, you're reading this book because you're concerned about that problem. If I were to ask you the question, what's the key? 
This is the question. What is the key to addressing the problem of ethnic disunity in the church? What would you say? And, you know, I, I, that's a question that, that grabs me. What is the key to addressing that problem? So he gives some, some examples. And then he says this. So what's my answer? The key to addressing ethnic disunity in the church is the proper application of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So what does he mean by that? He goes on to say, and he's really uh, going through the entire book of Galatians as he does this. In this fallen world, I'm just reading one paragraph. God has designed it so that there are only two ways that people can relate to God, law or grace. One condemns, the other saves. All human religion and false versions of Christianity involve some form of works righteousness. In this passage, Paul reminds us that if we rely on our moral performance to make ourselves right with God, we are under a curse. The problem, of course, with trying to gain favor with God through obeying the law is that no one is able to do it. We judge ourselves by ourselves and foolishly assume that our standard is the same as God's. We'll all admit that nobody's perfect as though that somehow lets us off the hook. But God requires perfect obedience. He refuses to lower his holy standard to accommodate sinful people. If we're going to pursue the fool's errand of salvation through the law, we can't be picky and choosy with what we obey. We must abide by all things written in the law. And he just goes on to quote other passages in Galatians. The doctrine of justification by faith alone makes a difference for us, church. It makes a difference even in things where it might not be obvious uh, to us. So what do we do about this message? What do we do about what God is teaching us here at the beginning of Galatians? And I just want to give you uh, three suggestions. First is think about your deepest problems in the context of God's character and God's truth. If you come to your pastors for discipleship or for counsel, and if you're suffering or you're struggling with sin, we're going to lovingly listen. And we're going to try to connect your suffering and your sin with the truth that's found in God's word. We're going to try to connect what's happening in our hearts to what's happening in God's hearts. We are going to connect our suffering. We're going to connect our trials to Christ's suffering. We're going to, to drink deeply of repentance. We're going to drink deeply of the grace that God has provided. We're going to extend that grace to others. We're going to seek to live that out. So think about your problems, your suffering, your trials in the context of God's character and truth. Second, study sound doctrine. Do it in this sermon series. So come here next week prepared prepared to hear from God through his spirit, through his word. Read the passage beforehand. You might, if you're a member here, you get that med meditation for preparation. Take a look at that. Uh, as you walk in here, prayerfully ask God to help you know his word, to help you understand his word. As you sing, think about the words that you're singing and how they relate to the passage that you're about to, to hear and to study. Study sound doctrine. If you, are, uh, if you live in this area, come be a part of Covenant Life Institute, our Sunday school. is starting again in a couple weeks. We're going to offer a class on what we believe is on sound doctrine.
go to that class. Don't go just to be a recipient, but go to participate. Study sound doctrine. See how it applies to your life. Live out that sound doctrine. Ask questions. Be an active participant. And then meditate on the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. If you do not belong to Christ, you will be served by meditating on this doctrine. If you do not belong to Christ, now is the time to accept that free gift that God is, is giving you. He sent his son, his son who gave himself for our sins so that we might be rescued from this present evil age. Do not spurn that gift. Do not seek to earn your own way or to survive by your own actions and by your own merits. Surrender that. That's a way of slavery anyway. There, the benefits of loving Christ, of accepting his atonement for your sins is freedom in Christ. It's adoption into the family of Christ. Do not neglect that. I'm going to pray. And when I'm uh, done praying, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is going to help us to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. It, it is a picture of Christ's work and our receiving of the grace of that work that he's done on our behalf. If, uh, if you have not believed yet and you want to believe, please see any member of this church. Any member of this church can share the gospel with you, can explain the gospel. Come see me. Come see any of the other pastors. People coming to Christ are not notches on our belt. We, we don't do the work in that. That is a work of the Lord in your heart. Do not neglect that salvation with which you've been offered. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord. You are the Lord God. It, it, just the, that we may even speak to you is a grace in our life. We're, we are your children, and we know you're, we're your children. You've set your love upon us. You've saved us. You keep your love upon us. You sustain us. And so we thank, we're thankful for you teaching us through your word. We're thankful for this body where we can demonstrate the grace that you've given us through the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so in all of this, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.